0: Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. So here's a fact you can take to the bank. I have no artistic ability whatsoever. Oh, and I'm terrible at math. Growing up, I dreaded art class and was so relieved it was an elective once I got to high school. Obviously, no such deal when it came to geometry or algebra. However, I love art. I'm a huge museum goer and get so much joy from experiencing the talent and creativity of others. And to that end, it has been my privilege and honor through this podcast to meet so many wonderful female artists. Case in point, my guest today. Beth Lipman is a contemporary artist who works in glass and is renowned for her sculptural compositions, which, in her words, explore aspects of material culture and deep time through still lives, site-specific installations, and photographs. Her solo exhibition at Manhattan's prestigious Museum of Art and Design, and I quote, brings together a decade of work and is the first major scholarly assessment of the artist's career. In these turbulent times, Lipman's art reminds us of where we came from, the subjectivity of history, and the need for harmony with a larger world. Beth, who's received numerous awards, has exhibited her work internationally, and nationally at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, the Corning Museum of Glass, just a few. And her work has been acquired by numerous museums. Beth is represented by New York's Nora Haime Gallery and Katie Tompkins Projects in Rhode Island. So let's meet and get to know Beth Littman. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today from Sheboygan Falls,
1: Wisconsin. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here with you.
0: Sheboygan Falls is my first such interviews, So I'm very very honored. And maybe one day I'll get myself to Wisconsin.
1: Please come. Please come visit.
0: You might regret those words. But Beth, I... Not at all. As I said in the introduction, expressing oneself through art is an alien concept to me, to be able to sit down and draw or configure, whatever it might be. So I would love to know was this something that was just so much bigger than you and started even when you were younger, much younger?
1: Huh, that's, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I do feel like we all inherently have aspects of creativity. So I am super curious about that um, in terms of, of how you think about that, Sandy, with your own life. But I know that the question's on me, so I will return to that. But mm-hmm. um, when I was young, my mother was kind of a self-taught practicing artist and so I would help her a lot in her studio and so I was kind of constantly around art she also took me to a lot of museums we lived in south central Pennsylvania so we would we would go to Philadelphia a lot we go to New York City we go to Baltimore Mm -hmm. DC so I was like in and out of museums all the time it was something very accessible to me and so I, I think for me it was never really this choice. Like, oh, I'm going to be an artist. It was more like, of course I'm making art. I'm just making art because that's what we do. And I never, um, I never got kind of insecure about that, that, mm-hmm. that, or or judgmental of. But perhaps I should have. <laughs> but, <laughs> you, know, I, you know what I mean? But like for me, it was very like very much um, this natural occurrence of what we do as humans, and so yeah, it was just at one point I wanted to be like a veterinarian or a professional soccer player or an artist. <laughs> I, I only remember that because I wrote it down in fourth grade. So I mean, it was, <laughs> it, was like, it was like there, you know, it was there, and I think I didn't want to get into seeing you know, animals die so much. So veterinarian was out after a period of time and I was not very good at soccer. So process of elimination.
0: Like you said, it becomes a natural act and it's bigger than you are, but that art speaks to you in a different way. And it's a natural act to pick up a brush and, and express yourself that way. Now, the bottom line is we all can do that, but we don't all have talent.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. I always think about it as a as almost like uh whether or not we choose to have the perseverance to just continue. Like if you were to make a mark, like the same mark every day of your life, eventually that mark making would evolve and change, and you would know more about what that was to make that mark over however many years that you're, that you're here. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I do think that's and for me as an artist, as a maker, that's interesting that kind of just the authenticity of whatever that is from that individual. Mm-hmm. So, um, so Yes, I mean, I think people have illuminating moments and some people are wildly talented, but then there's also just this understanding of it just being hard work that you just, you know, get up and you continue to work in that way. And it has to be
0: fostered in a different way, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Like you have to have the commitment to do it. Mm -hmm. And less of a, um, like, not to say that you shouldn't be very discerning because of course, as an artist, I think, especially for women, there's like this huge seed of doubt that we carry around all the time. If I'm, hello, yeah. I'm speaking for mm-hmm. myself, <laughs> I'm speaking mm-hmm. for myself. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's very real for a lot of people, and. And and that can be a tool that we use. But, you know, it's interesting. I want to take that just
0: a step in a different direction. For example, writing for me, W-R-I-T-I-N-G, not writing. Writing is a very contrived act to sit at this mm-hmm. computer and write a story. And I was a newscaster, so I had to write the news. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying it wasn't a natural act. Other things just came so much easier to me. And so mm-hmm. when people would say, I mean, I have ideas in my head and I'd love to talk to somebody about it, but I can't write down what I'm thinking. And it's just too mm-hmm. much work. It's just too ta- challenging. So I own it. And mm-hmm. I don't think I'm cheating myself in any way, but that's not what I do. As opposed- mm-hmm. And this is what you do and i'm grateful for the use out there that i can see your art and that it can speak to me and that's mm. what's just so critical and important to have beth lipman's mm. in our world
1: mm. well thank you i mean i do think if i could write you know what i'm trying to express within my work better than than creating sculpture or using photography or video i would i would do that I too find writing to be really challenging (laughs) Uh and I am in complete awe of uh, poets and I am also really in complete awe of composers and musicians, which seems like a different planet. Sure. From what I, from what I do. So I do, I do get that, that like level of appreciation and that inability to like even fathom how you would get to a point where you can do something like that on mm-hmm. some level. Mm-hmm. Um, but the yeah the the writing thing that's interesting because I you know when I started working in glass for instance it was so unbelievably hard. You know I burned myself <laughs> I got heat exhaustion I hated it. Why did you start working in glass?
0: Why don't you take us on that journey?
1: Yeah. I did take a summer program when I was a teenager in, in glassblowing. And I was also simultaneously doing things in textiles and I was drawing, I was using all forms of mixed media, but I was, you know, I was still in high school. And the, I mean, the materiality and the process of all of these different ways of working really come into play in terms of how you know how you negotiate um, you know approaching doing something is very different if you're sitting at a computer or you're drawing on a piece of paper or you have a raging furnace in front of you that's mm-hmm. 2,150 degrees or, you know, like sure. if you have a big loom that is in front of you with a warp and you need to strike a weft through that. I mean, all of these things provide different like restrictions mm-hmm. and then opportunity within the parameters of these different processes. And I think a lot of people feel this way about glass but perhaps it's not even relevant for me to say that but in this particular material it's it is so challenging that it provokes some individuals it provoked me uh to just keep trying i don't know why and then when i finally gained some level of control over it then the concepts began to come in what can i do with this material, what is it? How can it express some of the ideas that I am most curious about? Mm -hmm. But it was, I just had to get through like learning it. And I do wonder if poetry is the same way, you know, just, or that act of writing, writing stories. Like, can If you get to a point where you feel really like you have a method and you have a system, um, do you get to a point where it becomes a little bit easier where there's a, there's flow available to you. But you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I read about a lot of writers who uh, it's torturous for them, their entire, their entire right, process. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's
0: also a solitary right. existence, but when you were going to college, when it was time for you to apply to college, was that just a given that you were going to major in art?
1: I did. I knew I wanted to go to college for art. Um, I was just really that passionate about it. It wasn't even really a question. The workshops that I took as a teenager were so exciting to me that I just wanted to continue working in that way. And fortunately, my family was super supportive of Mm. me. They were like, okay, you can, can go to art school. Let's Let's figure out what the right school is. And um, they just fostered it, which I was was really thankful for. And what was the right school? I started at Mass College of Art in Boston. Mm -hmm. And then I just happened to be there over a period of time where they were like shifting campuses and moving from one building to another. And the glass studio was going to be shut down for the duration of the remainder of my undergraduate degree. So I transferred to Tyler School of Art Temple University in Philadelphia. So you went back home? I kind of did, yeah, kind of. I mean, we weren't living in Philadelphia at the time. We were in York County, mm-hmm. um, which was about an hour and a half away from Philly. But I, yeah, it, it did feel like coming home a little bit. Was
0: glass art while you were in school exclusive to you is that what your focus was solely
1: no i actually did a double major in fibers and glass and so a lot of the way that i think about constructing things comes from constructing in a fiber focused way even though i'm applying it to other materials at this point Mm -hmm. and um At this point, I really, I think in a broad range of materials. So even though I would say I'm best known for the work I've done in glass, I've also worked in metal, clay, photography, video. But there's, I'm a very uh, process-driven artist as well as a conceptually driven artist. So the materials, as I begin to learn how to... um, manipulate them, Mm -hmm. feed back into the ideas that I'm exploring. Mm -hmm. So it just so happened that I I actually started uh, with fibers background and a a glass background
0: while I was in college. So there was a lot of support and encouragement for your art and your talent when you were in school.
1: I think that... um, school, art school is one of the, it can be one of the most supportive environments that a young artist would ever find themselves in. I mean, you could, you could argue that it is incredibly rigorous and that, you know, you start to take on even more self-doubt than you had before, (laughs) depending upon the program. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, this is all within the premise of like, that someone cares, right? <laughs> you feel huh. Like the people around you are intimately invested in caring about what you're doing. And when you leave school, you could just do, like no one cares whether mm-hmm. you continue to make anything ever again, you know? So it is a nurturing environment.
0: When you graduated, Beth, what did you assume you were going to do? What did you want to do? <laughs>
1: Um, what did I say? Well, I wanted to prove to myself that I could continue to make work that was strong work outside of an academic environment. So that sounds like a relatively simple goal, but I had been in school for five and a half years. And we're talking about like over 20 years ago at this point. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. Um It was for me, it was, you know, I knew that I could create very ambitious work while I was being nurtured in in this academic environment. But it was not entirely clear how I was going to continue to make work after matriculating. Mm -hmm. And so it was, (laughs) I absolutely... Did not want to go back into school to get a graduate degree until I could prove to myself that I could establish a practicing, uh, you know, a vibrant studio practice outside of school. So I just, I just kept, I got a job. I was working in art installing at the time in Philadelphia and I made work in my apartment. And uh, I just kept trying to make things and find my voice outside of the academy. What year was this? Um, 94, 95. And so while you
0: were doing your paid work, you were also doing your personal artistic work. Correct. Uh Yes, I was. And then how, how did you get you out there? How did that work? I because I can't imagine what that's like. Somebody didn't just say, oh my yeah. God, everybody, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> Not like you auditioned oh. and they said, holy cow, you know, <laughs> we got another Judy Garland here. I'm dating myself by saying Judy Garland, but whatever.
1: Oh no, I totally appreciate that. I I totally appreciate that. Um no, I mean I think that's the that's the challenge, right? Like there are I think that's why 95% of people who graduate from a BFA, you know, within five or 10 years stop making things, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So one thing I did is I moved to New York um, within the year. And I just, I just kind of invested myself in the community. As deeply as I could, I volunteered to help other artists. I also got jobs assisting other artists. I moved to Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. This was in 95. I became really involved at Urban Glass, which is a nonprofit artist access facility um, in Fort Greene. And I just kept making my work. I, I established a studio in Dumbo. I just invested a lot in getting to know people and and becoming a part of the community, and I I think that that is really essential um, for emerging artists to really sink themselves into community if they can because it really first of all you're learning a lot all the time, but then you're also I think that it's that was a really great way of beginning to yeah like make ties within within community and i just made sure that i kept showing up for my studio practice so that as i got to know people and they got to know me that they also knew that i was a serious right. practicing artist and so you know i didn't really aggressively you know, hit the pavement and tried to generate a lot of opportunities for myself. I just, I just maintained like a vibrant community. And then eventually things were, I was given opportunities. Mm-hmm. One of the most um, kind of pivotal opportunities I was given came in 2000 when I was asked to be a part of a group exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. And that started my, my kind of investigation of the still life genre in a, in a really formal way. So I think I had this very gradual, slow, um, launch, Mm -hmm. I would Mm -hmm. say, which I, I would not trade for the world. So you were not at all discouraged. I wasn't discouraged because I didn't believe or think that I was entitled to anything other than what I had as a young artist. Um, And I think that sounds novel or weird to a lot of younger people at this point. Yeah, Uh Because, you know, some of the younger artists that I've had the pleasure of getting to know over a period of years, some of them get really frustrated that they're not... You know, they're not being uh, recognized more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for what they do. I will tell you, Sandy, like I never thought that I should be recognized for what I was doing in any kind of major way. I just thought it would be harder than that, and it was <laughs> so it was harder to yeah, it is hard, yeah, to continue to make things and make things that are relevant. And well, that speak to more then, than
0: just you?
1: It's I sort know, of the universality right?
0: of art. I mean, everybody doesn't have to like a Picasso or a de Kooning. That's the, the joy for me in art. It's just the enveloping or the, the wow, that how you're just sort of taken in, and the experience is mm. how you're drawn in. And sometimes you're not even aware <laughs> that someone put it together in a way. Do you know what I'm saying? that the experience is not transcendent yes Yes. exactly transcendent I want to know why glass spoke to you in a different way in terms of medium because that's not particularly common
1: it is a relatively new movement to use materials that were primarily used in industry before um, or in the decorative arts, mm-hmm. you know, in artisan workshops or guilds, or things like that, the way that I used the material was made possible by this entire movement to use these traditional processes and these traditional materials in a new way for conceptual application. And I think that um, the contemporary community really, is fully embracing of those materials at this point. I don't, but it wasn't for a long time. In the beginning for you, it
0: was a lot of convincing or
1: um, marginalizing maybe? Yeah, I mean, I I think that I had it fairly easy in relation to the generation before me, for instance. Um, But there's this, you know, this whole conversation just kind of continues to revolve and spiral and, and move along these different ways of applying, uh, materials. But I think, I think the thing about using glass or other historically craft materials is that in some ways it's really radical Sandy, right? Mm -hmm. Because they have been marginalized. They have been used. Those traditions have been used and applied for things that, are also non-commercial that exist outside of a capitalist society. They've been used and applied by indigenous cultures Mm, as well. mm -hmm. And also the whole premise of women's work, you know? So I think for me, I find the power of some of these materials to be in that history because you're bringing that history into a new context and you're giving it a different platform or a new platform in terms of the material itself as in glass the my primary material um the qualities continue to generate a discussion around the fragility of life um the preciousness of life it's all very metaphorical for me okay (laughs) you know even this like the elusiveness of belief systems right like you're this this i usually use clear colorless glass so you're you're seeing a form but then you're seeing through the form and you're seeing reflections back to you and so this constant negotiation where you're trying to kind of visually and conceptually take ownership over something that is just out of reach Hmm. um So that is interesting to me too. And also how fluid
0: that medium is. It's one thing to have painted a portrait, right? And it speaks differently to different people, but using a medium like glass, it's not static
1: I think that's right. I mean, if nothing else, it's optically fluid, but you know, the actual process is fluid. And then the actual material is a cooled liquid. Right. 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 So it's still moving. It's still moving on an atomic level. So that to me makes me the constant like reminder of how Nothing really, like, mass is really an illusion, right? Like, we are all made up of constantly moving particles, essentially, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that are constantly changing and evolving. So, you know, the material really speaks to all of these concerns beautifully. Mm -hmm. Do you make your own glass? I use, like, ready-made artistic glass that you can purchase for sculpting Mm -hmm. I don't mind my own resources and mix it's called batch um is raw glasses batch which is silica and potash and limestone and you can do that but I it's relatively caustic and not great to breathe when it's in its raw form Mm -hmm. so I use Materials that have already been melted once, Mm -hmm. so that it's a little bit better for my working environment. Beth, is your work political or is it
0: personal or both? (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In a word. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes, and thank you. Um, Yeah, no, I, for a long time, kind of negated the private or personal nature of the work. But I think that that was a way to try to shield myself and be less vulnerable Hmm. Um, because everything is really from a subjective gaze and perspective. So it can't help but be personal in a very real way. But the work is really generated from curiosity and... Not just anxiety, (laughs) you know, like, just, just like a lot, uh, like, like an earnestness to, to use making to help understand the moment that we're living in. And our moments, hasn't it felt like the last, you know, this last six months has felt like 10 years, let alone Mm -hmm. the last year. Mm -hmm. So time is really important in my work. So I'm constantly trying to negotiate what it means to be alive right now um, in this country, on this planet, with this, in this species. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so there is a
0: politics component in a way.
1: There is, absolutely. I mean, also just, I would beg the question that, you know, making ca- is political, it's a political act to make anything on some mm-hmm. level, right? Mm-hmm. When you could do nothing, Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, you could do nothing, but if you choose to act, it is inherently political on some level. What's that like,
0: Beth, to be judged?
1: Oh, um, well, I, you know, I, what is it like to be judged? It makes you... Re-examine your belief system that you've constructed, and however it's changed over, you know, the course of your life, evolved. Yeah, one would hope, Sandy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're still not painting vase-
0: irises and vases. You mean? <laughs>
1: Right. You know, I mean, like we hope that we evolve into, you know, truer belief sure, systems or more illuminated belief systems or whatever. But the judgment, I think, you know, what's worse than being judged is being ignored. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right? that's right. And not to say it sounds very narcissistic to say that. No, but I no, think not at all. If, you know, if you're not relevant, if what you're doing is missing the moment. Um, if your goal is to communicate and to to create those transcendental moments that you just referred to a minute ago, if you fail to do that, that's interesting, isn't it? Um,
0: Well, that's diplomatic. Use the word interesting. Yeah, I mean, it can
1: be because, (laughs) yeah, but it could be, you know, failure is not always a bad thing, but it's more... Mm -hmm. You know, i i worked I worked with John Peralt for a long time. He was a really magnificent artist and writer and critic. And he was like, you know, no publicity is bad publicity, mm-hmm. no matter what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just if someone is paying attention, you should be thankful. I don't disagree. And I've never right. forgotten that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What was that like when you got your first solo show? And do you remember the year and where
1: it was? 2000. And it was at Heller Gallery, which is now on 10th Avenue and 20, I think between 26 and 27. In the
0: Chelsea section of Manhattan. Mm -hmm.
1: um, In the Meatpacking District, Mm -hmm. I believe, was my first solo show with them. So yeah, no, it was really very stressful, but it was exciting. And I took about a year to make the work. And to your point in terms of judgment, I was a lot more, I was less sure of myself. Well, that makes obviously, sense. Obviously mm-hmm. at that time. So criticism kind of hit me in a different way at that time. And it was not a bad, you know, it's not bad at all. Like I really welcome criticism in the work, but it was It was interesting. Also, it was, um, Heller is a commercial gallery. So I, you know, I was negotiating being within a commercial space with this body of work. So working with solo shows within institutions is very different than working with commercial galleries um, as expected. So it was a sense of accomplishment for sure. But, you know, in this creative process, and I believe that this probably applies to other disciplines as well, but there's this like ebb and flow, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're, you're kind of manic for a while. And literally everything else is pushed aside while you just are frenetically working to realize this large event, whatever it is. And then afterwards there's this like inevitable almost depression that hits sure. Oh yeah. You're just like, oh it's, yeah. Where you've been emptied out, right? And then it starts to build again where you you have to pick up the pieces and figure out what you know, how do you continue on after that? And these fallow times are the times where things generate also. And so now I really pay attention to that. If if I'm in a moment of transition between things, I really value that moment because usually new things come, you know, from just taking that pause. So are there ever times that you worry about your creativity? When you say worry, are you talking about the possibility of it leaving or like that that my best work is behind no, me? No, or... maybe the inspiration part of this. I do feel like there have been times where I, you know, I am worried that that I won't have another great idea ever again. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But I, I will say that I have grown to, that is less of a worry now than it was maybe... 15 years ago. How liberating is that? How great is that? Because really, I mean, I think think that's where if I'm in my mid-career now, if we're going to categorize it, whatever. I mean, it is a place where I've proven to myself that I will continue, that that I have the capacity to continue and that the next thing will come, but it has to do with um, embracing the time, whatever time it takes in order to allow those ideas to come through me and Mm. it's not the same through my practice there's times where things are are coming at a more rapid pace and then there's times that I that it will take some time before I know what the right direction is but I just keep working through all of those times because I just keep working Because I have to be ready to take the next thing. Hmm. So I'm not really a passive waiting. It's more like I still go in the studio. I'm still making things every day. I might be teasing out specific nuances of an idea that I didn't quite feel that I got before. And that will preoccupy me. And then I might have this earth shattering moment like in a year. (laughs) <laughs>
0: or uh-huh, something. Uh-huh. And
1: that, you know, that'll like, you know, spur me off into this different direction. But I trust that through the practice of making that the next thing will come.
0: Your oeuvre is so extensive. I did not. I mean, I could just rattle off where your work has been exhibited. I only gave a couple of examples and that you've also received awards and grants and forgive this, we've come to praise Caesar, (laughs) that this must be just such a wonderful, I don't know, that you look back and you see how you've impacted people and how institutions want you.
1: Well, I mean, I guess I am very, very grateful that I have the opportunities to work not only with institutions, which I've done often within the last 10 years, but also, you know, every time that someone shares with me that they've been impacted by my work, it's like, it's very meaningful to me mm-hmm. to hear that because I am living in a quasi-rural area of Wisconsin um, by choice and my studio is behind my house and I work primarily alone, but I also work with others sometimes. But I'm essentially working in my own head. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: you know, not not to delve completely into political, but you know, I'm, sometimes I'm like, oh, am I? Is this my own little conspiracy theory in my head, in my studio? <laughs> or you, <know, laughs> uh-huh. you just you cycle into yourself? That's a part of your work as a creative maker right mm-hmm. is to, to dip into that isolation and so i do not always take for granted or i do not take for granted the fact that the work may connect with other people i use tools to court <laughs> to court mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. to bring them in to the world that i'm that i'm presenting i i feel secure that I know how to woo and court people through the use of materials and narrative and you know I give enough of beauty, for instance, um, or moments of of awe, you know. Mm -hmm. But I'm grateful. That's why I feel more confident than I did 20 years ago because I know I know that I I can connect with Someone else. I can present something that will communicate with them through an object or an installation that is, you know, a surrogate for myself, essentially. But none of
0: these institutions suffer fools gladly, Beth. You are a respected, established force within the art world. And I think somewhere that's got to resonate with you. You have to let me say that if you're not comfortable with you saying that.
1: I'll let you say that. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, you can definitely say that. That doesn't mean that it will continue to uh, always be the way it is now. So I, I do. I do kind of hold these accomplishments and uh, in a way that it's very. You know, I'm very appreciative of them, but I I try not to invest too much in them. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Because it's it's I feel like it's very tenuous, especially the way. That our culture works right now, especially with um, the digital revolution that we're living in, where we just are just one click away from from just moving on to Mm -hmm. whatever has to be relevant at that moment. And so I really try to anchor myself in the practice and the communication. And I feel very blessed with the accolades, but I... And I don't, I don't think of them lightly, but I really, I just try to constantly keep my gaze towards what I'm trying to say next, if that makes Uh, sense. It
0: does. And I think that it also makes sense that this brings you joy. That's absolutely true. (laughs) Yeah. And, and so many of us. That is
1: absolutely true.
0: That's something. What do they say? Jealousy is an irrational emotion. So I'm, that's something that I get, but I could be envious of that it's just, this is what I need to do. This is what I can do. And even though it's about me, it's also the ability of my being able to share it and then have it resonate with so many people out there. Whether it's a gallery or a museum, or it doesn't, or or one individual, it just doesn't make a damn bit of difference. And what a high that must be! I'm not yeah. saying it's always an easy road yeah. to hoe, but holy yeah.
1: shit, man! Yeah, that it is true. Uh, that does bring me a tremendous amount of, of joy. It's not to say that it's always uh, easy. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually quite difficult. But I am. I am here to break the myth of the suffering artist. (laughs) I mean, because I will tell you- The starving artist, you mean also. Well, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes I still scrounge around, but I'm obsessed with food. So I I haven't been starving that much lately. (laughs) But I will say like, I, I do this idea of the suffering artist. One thing I will say to counter that is that, you know, aside from spending time with my children- it is the best part of what I do, right? Is, is going in and being completely engrossed in making, making things in my studio. That's euphoria when you're doing that.
0: Well, Beth, I really so enjoyed meeting you and hearing all about your work and your life and your art. And I think that we're all the better for having the Beth Lipman's in our lives.
1: I really appreciated talking with you, Sandy. Thank you so much. Well, it's totally
0: my pleasure. And you know what? You keep us in your loop. Will do. Well, thank you so much. I extend to you a part two down the road. We'd love to have you back, Beth. And it was just truly fascinating to meet and get to know you. I love what I do. Thank you. Thanks so much. I really love what you do as well. So keep going. I'll keep on trucking. We will together. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.